Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de Lamatrac, and Ina Corio. And lately I've been being Gabrielle Lawson. I just wrote another story because right now it's Bucky Barnes time. I have kind of a one and a half whip. <laughs> the half whip I'm going to call is that series. All the stories are short stories and they are one shots and so they're done. But the series isn't done, so that's half a whip, in my opinion. So I just wrote the one story for the whip. Now I'm supposed to write a, another chapter of the whip. So the half whip is done. It's the, half, uh, the full whip. Full whip's turn. But having wrote, written that story, I thought, okay, I'm not going to go through all of them before I do another episode and another story of this trilogy. There's been a, a little bit of a gap since I finished Faith 1, but I, you know, didn't want to leave you hanging too long, so I wrote my short story, and now I'm going to read Faith Part 2, Forgiveness. And maybe after Faith, I'll have a bit more. It would be really great if by the time I finish the whole Faith trilogy, I've actually finished one of my whole whips, I won't have finished that half whip because I have various ideas for for stories to go in that series. There is another series which I haven't thought of how to carry on still. That's the making of the Winter Soldier. And the four stories I have in it kind of set him up to be the Winter Soldier. So there's not really another story to tell about how he becomes the Winter Soldier because... At that point, he is ready for the cycle of freezer, fry his brain, read the words, send on mission, rinse and repeat. So, yeah, there's not a whole lot left to do in that. So, that series, I would say, is done. And not really a half whip at all. But the other series... And, oh, and there is another series with Bucky. There's the the Time Between series, and the Time Between series is just two stories, and that is done too, because it's the time between the two movies, Captain America Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War. And so there's two years in there, and we see Bucky walk away at the end of Winter Soldier, and we see him get pulled out of hiding in Civil War. So I wanted to fill those two years of time. So that series is done because the time between is, is done. I suppose I could write some of his time in Wakanda because that was about two years as well. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's a big debate on, in my mind anyway, did, did Cap visit? It seemed like he was out and about doing, you know, heroy things without being an Avenger and still being in hiding, but he wasn't hanging out in Wakanda with his best friend who he hadn't seen for 70 years because he thought he was dead. So, if he didn't, you know, that begs the question of why not? He, it, Bucky was his only tie to his time. Cap was on, Bucky's only tie to his time. And he just leaves him alone and the thing is if he leaves him alone and he doesn't go visit him very often which when he returns at the beginning of um infinity infinity war he seems like he hasn't seen him for a while 
So it really means, you know, makes it seem like Steve is kind of a jerk uh, because he leaves Bucky alone at the end of um, Endgame and he goes back in his time. So he's completely out of Bucky's life at that point. And Bucky's not doing well at the beginning of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. He left Bucky with no one from his time, no one who knew him, no one, no one who really understood what he went through in the first, Second World War. And Bucky really needed someone. And that's going to come up in this series that I'm still half whipping on. <laughs> that I think at some point, at some, there's already a place in the series where Sam has wondered you know, has mentioned that on, you know, one side, he's very happy for Steve, but he also left Bucky in the lurch. Bucky still wasn't at the end of his line. So <laughs> I'm with you till the end of the line. Only one of them meant it, apparently. And it was kind of a dick move. And honestly, there's other reasons. It was a dick move to go back in time to be with Peggy. There's the whole... Did Peggy have a family that was not Steve? And now that's been erased. And there's the, how could Steve just sit back and live a quiet life and not react to bullies and things like that? And oh, while he's back in time, his best friend is being tortured, brainwashed, programmed. To be an assassin for the guys they fought in the Civil War, in the in the World Second World War, and he knows it. He didn't know it the first time, but he darn well know, would know at that time that Bucky would be stuck in that until 2012. How could he sleep at night knowing that that he kissed his niece? You know, there's that. There's the whole, how, why is it okay that Peggy is his prize at the end? She is an assertive woman with value in her own right. So why is she a prize for Steve in the end? No doubt that the two loved each other, and I think she always did. But at the end of her series... She was going for Daniel. She realized she loved Daniel. Daniel loved her. There was that. And I liked Daniel. <laughs> it's not that I don't like Steve. I just think it was bad writing. It's like they thought... <laughs> it's kind of like the Enterprise series finale where the guys who made it thought it was a gift to the fans. This is going to round out... Cap's arc. It's going to be so sweet for the fans. He's going to get that dance with Peggy and this comeback as an old man like he sat through it all and they didn't think of all the little problems with that. Maybe they did and didn't care, which would be worse, but I think they just didn't think it through. It made a nice little epilogue, him dancing with Peggy, but... 
there's a lot of problems with what he did. And we've had a lot of time to watch Endgame again, to watch that in, to think about Bucky, especially once the Falcon and the Winter Soldier came th came through. And we had a lot of time to analyze that and think, wait a minute, that wasn't a great thing to do. Not to Peggy, not to Peggy's possible kids that she had without Steve, not to maybe Daniel or someone else. He rewrote history. And what does that have to do with Loki? You know, the Loki series where we have back then there was the time variance authority. So they would have come and gotten Steve. And if they didn't because that was supposed to happen, then they have to go back and get Peggy because she must have been a variant when she had that other family. Or when she got together with Daniel. So, yeah. <laughs> they messed up kind of big at the end of Endgame with that. You got to think these things through. And just because Loki wasn't written yet by writing Loki the way they did, they made another question about Steve going back in time to be with Peggy. So they wrote themselves into a little problem. I really like MCU. I think they make some really good story decisions. I just saw um, Doctor Strange and the Madness Multiverse, Multiverse of Madness. That's what it was. It ended up being quite good. I was a little worried going in because the whole multiverse thing is not my favorite thing. And I thought it was going to be all crazy and hard to watch and hard to keep up with. But it wasn't. So, you know, that was good. It ended up being a good show. I liked um, America Chavez. I felt they did well with showing the corruption and obsession of Wanda. Um, so it made sense. And because to me it made sense, I didn't cry a tear for her. But um, yeah, I think... My husband and I talked about this a lot as well as reading other comments and stuff. I think her arc made sense because of the book. Because the book was corrupting her. And she had so much of that trauma built in. She had a squishy um, moral compass to begin with. You know, when we first met her, she was with Hydra. And she went with Ultron. She attacked our people. And... She only later, with Clint's help, came around to the side of good. Then she lost her brother. Bam. And we know early on she lost her parents to a Stark missile. And that's why she turned against Stark and against the Avengers. She, she was able to be against them because of what Stark did. Stark also had a squishy moral compass. Um, but she was... A bad guy first and then she was a good guy and then she was a bad guy for Westview in her series there was a badder guy in um, um, Agatha Harkness but she was she she hurt a lot of people in Westview and then she did the right thing 
and then she became full-on villain and did the right thing. Sorry if I'm spoiling, but the movie's been out for a bit now. But what she did was so bad that I don't think the world would have uh, would accept her back. I think she they would put her in the raft for the rest of her life if she did. And there wouldn't be any getting out and because she was incredibly, incredibly evil across multiple universes. So, yeah, uh, she's not coming back from that one. Hopefully somebody in 238 or uh, on 238 Earth knows that the Wanda who did all that damage there was actually overtaken by the Wanda from 616. And is not guilty of the things that she did there. Anyway, away from that, we're going back to DS9. We're going back to Dr. Bashir. We're going back to Faith. At the end of Faith, Hope, he goes through the airlock onto DS9. So that's where we pick up with Faith 2. Oh, wait, before we get started, I want to tie this back, well, all that commentary back to what this has to do with writing. I used to always say, think of all the questions. When you're writing your story or series of stories, think of all the questions because you need to answer all those questions so that the reader doesn't ask them. Or if they do, they can look back in your text and go, oh, there it is. There's the answer. It helps you build the middle of a long story, by the way. I just think they missed some of those questions. They let themselves open to all kinds of questions, interpretations. And now a lot of people thinking, mm, Steve was kind of a jerk. On a lot of levels when he did that, which is so out of his character. Steve is not a jerk. And yet he acted like a jerk. So he made... They, because they did that, because they didn't think of everything, didn't ask themselves the questions and write them, they left us open to criticizing Steve. Steve Rogers, Mr. Perfect. Mr. Perfect comes off as kind of an a-hole. And that is OOC, out of character, which... Most fan fiction writers will try never to have their canon characters be OOC. Or even their OCs. They can't be OOC from themselves either. So, which is original characters. Even your original characters, if you've written them enough, you write them strangely, they're OOC. They're out of character. So, you want to stay OO in character generally. And one of the biggest comments, you know, or compliments is when people tell you, I could so hear the characters talking just like that. It sounded just like them. You got them on point. It, you really got the characterizations good. So things like that, you know, that you know you're doing a good job. So Marvel Cinematic Universe just had Steve Rogers, the first Avenger, out of character in a huge way. And it has many implications for Bucky Barnes and the rest of the time from 1940, whatever, that he went back 
to 2012 when he shows back up. And where did that shield come from? Thanos destroyed the shield, so he didn't take it back with him. Where did he get it? Did he go to Wakanda under secret and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to be here in 20, you know, some odd years. But yeah, I already know you're here. Can I get a shield like this? Wanda wouldn't know, to, Wakanda wouldn't know to make it for him ahead of time. Where'd he get that? To get to Sam. It's not clear. They didn't answer these questions when they wrote the end of Endgame. And when you have your one of your main characters going that far out of character and you don't think of these questions and answer them, you come up with a problem at the end. You know, it, it was... It's disappointing. And you don't want to be disappointing to your readers. So, Endgame was not a fanfic, obviously. It is the fan, you know, the, the canon. It is not the fanfic. So, but I'm, I'm analyzing it as if it is because it was still something that was written and it was something that they messed up when they wrote. And it's something for you to avoid it in your writing. I think they went for a pat ending and it, then they didn't realize what kind of can of worms they opened when they did it. But because they did it, it's canon to us fanfic writers. And now we have to deal with it. Otherwise, we have to go AU, uh, alternate universe, or deviate from canon to write the story the way we wish it had gone. And that's, you know, I try to stay canon most of the time. I do occasionally do a use, um, but a lot of times I just leave it being, you know, they showed me what canon was and now I have to use canon to be the background of my stories. And I'm okay with that but they do sometimes throw me <laughs> bad canon. Scratch that. Sometimes it's so freaking bad that 99% of the fans have replaced the canon with head canon or book canon. And that Star Trek Enterprise, the finale was so widely, widely hated for being the piece of crap that it was that we don't count it in our canon. They screwed it up that bad that we negate it. Of course, of course, with Steve, they have other things that come after it, but in Enterprise, that canon is gone. It stopped right there because the series ended. So we just lop it off before that last episode and carry on as we wish because, ugh, <laughs> What they did, the books even uh, tried to fix it. The very first book that came out after the end of Star Trek Enterprise makes it that Trip faked his death, for instance, which makes more sense. In fact, on a rewatch, I even saw that he winked when he was dying and he went through the imaging chamber in sickbay. He winked I'm like, what? So that that kind of. <laughs> is a canon nod to the non-canon book. Remember Star Trek, only the TV and movies are canon. The books are not. But the book has that being 
a fake. But that's not the only problem with that episode. The big overarching problem with that episode is that it wasn't even a Star Trek Enterprise episode. It was a Next Generation episode in a hologram about the characters of Enterprise. Which royally sucked. (laughs) That sucked for the cast. That sucked for the fans. That just sucked all the way around. But it took... uh, (laughs) 20-some-odd years for the writer to realize that he made a mistake. He actually admitted it. (laughs) He thought he was gift-wrapping a gift to the fans, and it turned out he was punching us in the gut with that garbage. So anyway, (laughs) that's why I wanted to come back in and tie it to writing Ask all your questions so that the the if your readers ask those, they will find the answers in your stories. And try to keep your characters in character unless you're absolutely meaning to make them out of character. Try to stay in canon unless you know you're going to deviate from canon on purpose don't do it by accident. Don't do any of it by accident. Do everything on purpose, everything to make your story good and to keep that criticism at bay. There will be criticism. It happens. I get criticism now and then, but it's either somebody not giving me a chance with the, you know, not actually reading the story or they just didn't agree that the story should have been written or whatever, but most of it is good feedback and some of the criticism you know I can entertain a little bit Um, one guy emailed me and said that alien us should be labeled as horror I labeled it as angst I did put in tags about torture but yeah should it be horror to me horror denotes monsters I have one horror story as I see it and that is lure of the darkness and that has Mirkwood spiders kidnapping an elf child. <laughs> so, and not a happy ending either. So to me, that's horror. In my mind, monsters denotes horror. But it's not, not always the case, is it? We have horror shows or horror movies that are about bad people. And isn't some of the things that the Nazis did to the Jewish people and other concentrate concentration camp survivors worthy of being a horror story and i wrote two stories like that ospian shim and aftermath so should they be labeled horror too when humans or humanoids or scientists can be doing horrible things or when they are torturing another person is that horror as opposed to just angst. Angst generally is any kind of trauma. It can be physical trauma. It doesn't have to just be emotional as a, as a, as a genre in fan fiction. But are those things more horror? Should I change my genre on Alien Us? Should I change my genre on Aftermath and Osvanshim? That's a question. Um, yeah. Tell me what you think. Please email me. 
tweet me. I'll give the address, if you haven't <laughs> memorized it, at the end of the episode. Let's get on to faith. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Faith, Part Two, Forgiveness, by Gabrielle Lawson. Author's note, chapters one through five are in Faith, Part One, Hope. So this story will actually start with chapter six. And Faith 5 will continue the same way. It will not start at chapter 1, but whatever chapters after the last of Faith 2. All right. The usual disclaimer applies. I won't read that. I will say, read this author's note. This story does reference other stories of mine. It can stand alone, but it might leave you with questions. However, if you haven't read Faith Part 1 or listened to Faith Part 1, it will leave you completely baffled. That story can be found here on my website, and I've listed out my website, as well as fanfiction.net, Nao3, and of course, There Are Three of Me, the podcast. Also note, this story, uh, I already did that one, but that's in there twice. I don't need to have that in there twice. I'll have to edit that redundancy out. Acknowledgements, thank you to my beta readers. I've added a few more over the more than a year that it took to write this. It's been a quiet year in beta reader land, but the story got finished and help came when I needed it. Thanks to all the members of the writing circle, writer's circle, which was a group that I had for beta readers back then, and Daryl Beach too. All right, chapter six. At once it was familiar and unsettling. It wasn't so different from when he and Captain Sisko had returned from Adygean Prime. The bay was full of people. Some were there to meet friends and family from the crew of the Enterprise, talking in little groups as they funneled toward the exit. But many were there for him, and regardless of the reason for being there, everyone in the bay stopped to stare at him. But that time after Adygean Prime was different. He was happy then, happy to be recovered, to be home. Now happy was a foreign thing, something other people, blissfully unaware other people, felt. What he felt this time was that same energy pricking at the back of his neck. This is what I wanted, he told himself, hoping he could rationalize the pricks away. His friends were there, O'Brien, Kira, and Odo, Worf, Jake, and Nog, Ezri, Jabara, Reyna, Dr. Girani, and several other medical personnel. They smiled, but they also hesitated. Some lifted their hands to clap, but resisted when the senior staff didn't raise theirs. Garrick was there, too, hanging back by the exit where Quark was greeting new arrivals who'd lost interest in the homecoming. Garrick wasn't smiling like the others. He nodded a greeting and then stepped through the door. Kira stepped forward first and wrapped him in a hug. Welcome home. It's good to see you again. Bashir raised one arm to hold her, and he had to admit that he liked how he felt just then, like he was home. It's good to be seen. Others came forward to welcome him, one by one, and Bashir almost forgot why he'd been away and how long. This was no different from the trip back from Adygean. He was home, and Riker's warning was unnecessary. He could have his life back. It would be as if the last six months hadn't happened, except that he wouldn't have to fear abduction by Section 31. Shaking hands and accepting hugs, Bashir worked his way toward the exit. It was a bit overwhelming seeing each of these people again, shaking hands, embrace, accepting an embrace. Memories in, flooded in with each one, and he didn't see who was next until he or she was standing in front of him. Dax held him a long time. Worf simply shook his head. Chief O'Brien stood by and smiled as his family did the hugging. Jake seemed even taller than before. 
It's good to see you again, doctor. Then the room seemed to spin, and all the sound rushed out the slowly closing airlock door. Cisco. He'd forgotten about Cisco. It was hard to breathe. Thank you, sir, Bashir choked out, hoping he didn't sound as insincere as Cisco had. It was all upside down now. This was the Cisco the war had made. The life Bashir wanted didn't include him. More people stepped up to greet him, and Bashir smiled back, shook a hand, accepted a hug. But he wasn't fooled by it anymore. The life he'd had was a fantasy. Time moved forward, not back. Cisco could never be the captain he had been, and Bashir knew he could never have the faith he'd once had. He finally reached the door. He wanted to get, get away from all of them now, but he wasn't sure how he'd manage it. Can I carry for that for you, sir? It was Nog who asked, and he was already reaching for Bashir's bag. Bashir snapped the bag away, realizing too late that he'd been too harsh. No, he said, trying to sound normal, unafraid. That bag held his life. But you can tell me where my quarters are. Right where you left them, sir, Nog replied. You should know, sir, that there is a party prepared if you feel up to it. Party? Of course there would be a party. But this one room had been enough. His skin itched from all the energy, the people. His ears rang with all the voices. He missed the quiet of his quarters on the Enterprise. I don't think I do, he told Nog. I just want to go home. I understand. Nog tapped his leg once to show he could empathize. But just remember, you are home now, and we're all pretty happy about it. That's nice to hear, Bashir admitted. I need to go now, he whispered to the Ferengi. Do you think you could run interference for me? Give me time to settle in before everyone comes to my door? You've got it, sir, Nog replied. If you find the time, you should go see Vic. He was pretty broken up when you were when they said... I'll do that, Julian promised, soon. And he escaped out the door before anyone else could stop him. The corridor was clear since the visitors had already made their way into the station and many of the greeters were still in the airlock. Bashir dashed for a turbo lift before any others could make their way out after him. He called out the deck and tried to feel at home again in the familiar movement of the turbo lift. It wasn't as smooth as those aboard the Enterprise. It was darker, like the station. He found that comforting. The turbolift jerked to a stop, and Bashir held his breath as the door opened, but no one was there. He stepped out into the corridor, his corridor. He remembered it, but it didn't feel like it did before. Riker's ad admonishment about changing puzzles and pieces that didn't fit came to mind, but he pushed it away. He'd make it fit. He'd make it fit. That wasn't so much like six months ago. That was more like the time he'd first arrived, his first week on the station. The corridor was familiar and foreign at the same time. In a week or two, it would only be familiar. He found his quarters and braced himself for the same reaction of familiar and foreign. He opened the door, expecting to see little beyond the furniture. Instead, he saw Kukalaka smiling at him from the table in the corner. His paintings hung on the walls. He went into the bedroom and found clothes in the closet. His clothes. Not all of them, but his nonetheless. He was home. Well, that was quick, Jake commented quietly. Captain Sisko heard him, though. Probably too many people. He wasn't surprised. The Bashir he'd met on the Enterprise didn't see the, seem the type for crowds. He'd watched Bashir as he was welcomed back. He'd seemed hesitant coming out of the airlock, and though he smiled, shook hands, and hugged those who greeted him, 
He'd seemed distant, maybe even sad. He seemed more to match Troy's and O'Brien's description than the memories of Sisko's own encounter with him, until it was Sisko's turn. Bashir had frozen for an instant, even stumbled a bit. He'd looked pale and off balance. There was something in his expression, and Sisko couldn't decide if it was fear or distrust. He made his way to the door rather quickly after that. It's probably quite a story, Jake decided, if he'll ever tell it. Just don't push him, Jake, Sisko warned. There were some things in that story which Sisko hoped Jake would never learn. I wouldn't, Jake assured him. Dax walked up to them. It went better than I expected, actually, she said. He seemed a bit bewildered, but otherwise not overly traumatized. I can understand him wanting to get out of the crowd. We should probably leave him alone for a while. She pulled the captain away from Jake, and he knew she was talking now in an official capacity. I'll go see him tomorrow morning. I'll be seeing him every day in the beginning. We should discuss a duty schedule. Sisko didn't feel right about having Bashir on any duty roster, but he'd, he knew he'd been on light duty with the Enterprise and had managed just fine, according to Dr. Crusher. Still, he didn't want to commit right away. Let's wait until after you meet with him to decide, he suggested. Give him some time to settle in. Bashir had thought maybe he'd be able to sleep now that he was back in his own bed, but sleep just wouldn't come. He felt uneasy, restless. He couldn't keep his eyes closed. Instead, he kept glancing toward the foot of the bed, waiting to see Sloane in the chair there, but it was empty. He tried staring at the ceiling, hoping boredom would help him fall asleep, but after an hour, he was still awake and the ceiling appeared to move just a bit. Bashir sat up and threw his legs over the side of the bed. He stood up and called for lights. He knew the ceiling was more likely his imagination than a changeling, but it had unnerved him just the same. It was no use. He wouldn't sleep tonight. No one had come to see him since he'd checked into his quarters, but he had a few messages. At first, he had, he had been thankful, but now he wanted the company. It was too late, though. Miles would be asleep, Dax too. Kira was probably with Odo. Even Quark's was closed by now. There was no one to see. Bashir sat down in the middle of the living area of his quarters and tried his old game. He started with the wall by the door. But he'd already done it. Thousands of times. His quarters were the first thing he'd taken apart in the cave. He'd branched out from there. It only took him a few minutes to dismantle the wall now. Disgusted, he stood and went back to the bedroom just long enough to grab some clothes. He changed in the living area. Maybe no one was up and maybe everything was closed, but he could still take a walk. It was something. He glanced both ways down the corridor before stepping into it. He found it a little disturbing seeing the station so empty. It wasn't what he remembered, except for a few times. Like that time the ion storm had caused an evacuation of all but the senior staff and Farad had hijacked Jadzia's symbiont, or the time his academy roommate was running around killing people a few years ago. He'd nearly died that time. He tried not to think about that as he got into the turbo lift. It he wasn't even sure where to go at first. He finally decided on the promenade. He wanted to see it, even if it was closed. The turbo lift let him out at, on the upper level, and he was glad for that. The infirmary was not far away, and though quiet, it was open. He didn't want to face anyone just yet, at least not anyone who would ask questions. He walked away from the infirmary and descended the stairs. The shops, for the most part, were as he remembered them, except that they were closed and dark. A few had changed names and probably owners, but not many. Garrick's had different clothes in the windows, and he could see a light inside, but he didn't know if he was ready to face him yet, knowing what he knew. 
He spent an hour walking the eerily quiet promenade. He still wasn't sleepy. He took the next turbo lift before the infirmary and decided to go down. He couldn't really go up. The night shift would be manning ops. He could maybe find some place he hadn't yet dismantled. He chose one of the lower decks near Reactor 4. That reactor had never been repaired enough to be of any use to the station after the Cardassian withdrawal. The decks down there were de deserted almost all the way to the promenade. There were only a handful of fully utilized decks below the promenade. At least that was the case six months ago. He hoped it was still so now. He wasn't disappointed. The area had he ended up in was so deserted that it didn't even have working lights. He didn't mind that too much, though. He was still on familiar terms with darkness, and he doubted anyone looking for him would even consider searching for him in the lower decks. Still, he listened carefully for footsteps or anything out of the ordinary as he walked. He used his hands to feel the walls and any structures there. Mostly, he found ordinary walls, just like the ones he'd dismantled so many times before. But he did find some new things further down, closer to the core. The power transfer conduits were different down there. Bigger. The replicators seemed older, on a different, of a different model, perhaps, than those on the upper decks. What quarters and supply rooms there were were stripped bare. No beds or bunks or furniture of any kind. There were a few computer consoles, especially in the reactor room. Those had never been upgraded, never integrated with Starfleet systems. It would take some research, but it was kind of the kind of challenge he was hoping for. Tomorrow he'd do some reading, find some diagrams. But tonight, while he was down there, and since there was no power to activate even a light, he decided to employ a hands-on approach. Bashir started with the power transfer conduit since it was the least complicated. He pulled off the cover and began to gently feel his way around the nodes and cables. By morning, he could have drawn a diagram of his own. He knew it was morning because of the change in power drawn by the station. He could feel it vibrate in the walls and deck plates. Everything that slept at night was coming to life again. He lifted himself from the floor and stretched out his aching muscles. He'd fallen asleep. It was still dark, and for a moment, he was disoriented. It was only a moment. Realizing that someone was sure to come by his quarters for a visit, most likely Dax, he headed back out the way he'd come. It was faster this time, since he'd memorized the layout on his way down. It was still early when he emerged on the promenade. Shops were just beginning to open. Only a few customers bothered to beat the morning crowds by being out at this hour. No one even noticed him. Bashir skirted around the infirmary, but noted the light still shining softly in Garrick's shop. As he entered the turbolift, Bashir rubbed his face and was thankful he'd have time to shave before Dax came by. Starfleet, however, got an early start on the day, and his, the quarters on his decks were beginning to spill out their inhabitants. A few people waved hello as they passed, but for the most part, Bashir got home without too much of a fuss. After he'd showered and shaved, he went to the closet to find a change of clothes. Then he realized he didn't know what to wear. He'd been given a duty shift on the Enterprise, so a uniform was appropriate there, but he'd have to start again here. If they didn't allow him back to duty right away, he should stick to a civilian attire. He decided on the uniform. His time on the Enterprise would probably be taken into consideration. He'd be given light duty at the start. He was concerned, though, that his post of chief medical officer would now belong to someone else. He'd try asking Dax about that when she came. The door chimed just as he finished his breakfast. Come in, Dax, he called. The door opened, and Esri walked in with an inquisitive smile. How did you know it was me? Bashir put his plate in the replicator and gave her a light grin. Forgive me if I sound Vulcan, but it was a logical assumption. You need to evaluate me before I can go back to duty. Her smile faded just a bit. And I just want to make sure you're okay. 
Of course, Bashir agreed. Would you rather we meet in your office? Not if you're more comfortable here, she answered. To be honest, Bashir replied, deciding openness in some areas might keep her from prodding too deeply into others. I don't feel all that comfortable here. It's like I don't belong anymore. You belong, Julian, she reassure, reassured him quickly. It will just take some getting used to. Bashir shook his head but offered her a seat on the couch. I don't mean on the station, he clarified. I mean here, in my quarters. She relaxed a bit at that. Do you know why that is? Bashir pulled one of the chairs from the table over to the coffee table. Yes, I think it's because I was twice abducted from here, he said, not raising his voice, because on at least three occasions I awoke to find Sloan sitting in a chair at the foot of my bed, and because for a month a changeling lived here while impersonating me, and because for six months I lived in a cave. Esri nodded. Those are valid reasons. Would you like your quarters changed? Bashir thought about that. Would it help? He was sure Sloane could find him wherever he went, the Dominion too, if they were so inclined. No, he said finally, I think it will get better in time and feel more like home again. Another place wouldn't make much of a difference. This is what I remember. If you change your mind, she offered, just let me know. She consulted a pad she had brought with her. Dr. Crusher had fi quite a few nice things to say about you. Did you enjoy your time on the Enterprise? Bashir gave that some thought. Some of it, he decided. Not the brig, not the battle, and not the away mission. I read your report about Carrillo Nauru, she said, and Rikers. I'm sorry you had to see something like that. Bashir shrugged. Someone had to. We might not have found the transmitter any other way. We wouldn't have known what happened to the colonists. You wouldn't have found the changeling, Ezri added. Bashir shook his head. I'm sure the changeling would have found us. He probably wanted to be rescued so that when we figured out the solution to the dilithium, he could, he could take it from us. Well, it's good to see you can still find the bright side of such situations. Ezri smiled, but Bashir thought it seemed forced. He didn't take any offense in it, however. She was in her counselor role. And, though there were places he didn't want to go, he didn't intend on making her job harder. She was only trying to help, and he realized that, even as he thought it impossible. It's more being realistic, he told her, or seeing the practical in a given situation. There's really nothing bright in falling down a turbolift shaft into a room full of rotting corpses. She surprised him then. Her smile was genuine. <laughs> That's better. Bashir was honestly puzzled. Better how? She reached out a hand to touch his knee. I'd be more worried if you thought everything was okay with that, if everything was just rosy. He wasn't sure what to do with that. He stood and walked to the table, keeping his back to her. Nothing's rosy, he said quietly. He hadn't meant to say it out loud. Oh, I don't know, she replied, walking up behind him. Some things are. I thought I'd lost someone I cared about, and he came back last night. Mixed bag, he thought, just like he'd told Data. Good and bad mixed up together. That's one way to look at it. What's the other way, she asked, turning him around to face her. That I've been gone too long, he replied, voicing his fear, the one he'd had after his talk with Riker, that everything has changed around me and maybe I won't fit anymore. She nodded. That's understandable. Things have changed. People have grown older. Some have died. New people have come. The circumstances of war. But you can still fit. He wanted to believe her. How can you be sure? Her smile brightened. Because we left you a spot. He didn't understand. They thought he was dead. Go report to Kira, she told him. Let her tell you. 
She walked back to the couch and picked up her pad. I'm going to clear you for light duty, like on the Enterprise. Just let Kira know when you're ready to start. It doesn't have to be right away. Thank you, was all he could think to say. She smiled that slightly off-kilter smile she had. You're welcome. I'll see you tomorrow. After lunch? He nodded. That's fine. In my office, then, she said as she headed for the door. Have a good day, Julian. Have a good day, Julian. Bashir decided he'd ne- Bashir didn't think he'd ever heard that salutation spoken as sincerely as that. Kara was glad when she got the communique from Esri. Julian could go back to work. He would be up soon. Kara briefed one of the other ops officers and cleared her workstation. She wanted to talk to him in private. Everyone looked up when the turbolift brought him to ops. They offered greetings, welcoming him back, but no one left their workstations. Kara offered him a smile as he approached her. He looked well, though perhaps tired and a little wary. She understood that. She probably looked like that during the occupation. Esri said I should see you, he said, to report for duty. Kira didn't drop her smile. Let's take a walk and discuss it. He didn't share her smile. Shouldn't I be talking to the chief medical officer? Kira brightened. That's what we need to discuss. She took his arm and steered him back to the turbo lift. She decided on the wardroom. Captain Sisko would need it later for a meeting with Admiral Ross, but that wasn't until this afternoon. Have a seat, she said, pulling out a chair. She sat in the one next to it. It is so good to see you, she said again. She couldn't help it. He was the first of all those she had lost who had come back. His brow was furrowed and he got straight to the point. Esri said there was a place for me, a place left for me. She also said I should talk to you. Kara's smile brightened. You can't talk to the chief medical officer because there isn't one. His smile widened and that one vein in the middle of his forehead became more pronounced. What? How can you not have a chief medical officer? Someone has to re be responsible for the health and well-being. Kara raised a hand. We had six. That stopped him. Bashoran doctors. Rotating schedules. He was still indignant, though his tone had calmed. Rotating? Kara nodded. Monthly. Kara nodded. Monthly. His eyes widened again. Colonel, you can't just swap out doctors once a month. A chief medical officer needs to know his post, his staff, his environment. He has to have the trust of his patients. It takes months to bring all that together and become an effective administrator and physician. You can't just start over once a month. I realize that, she replied, letting him rant. She had known he'd react that way. She'd missed that passion. That's why Dr. Garani offered to be the assistant chief medical officer the whole time to provide stability. Then why not appoint her to the post? he asked. She's a fine doctor, and a Bajoran one at that. It has nothing to do with her being Bajoran, Kira told him, and she was content where she was. No one in your staff wanted the post. They felt they couldn't feel, fill your shoes. He was still confused. She could tell by the brows, the vein, the way he gestured when he spoke. If it wasn't about being Jor Bajoran, why not have Starfleet send a replacement? Kira was quick to answer. Because I wanted them to think it was about being Bajoran. I told Captain Sisko that this was a Bajoran station and that Bajorans should have more representation in the senior staff. And then I said the rotation was a way to give the Bajoran doctors an opportunity to treat many different species where they'd mostly treated only Bajorans before. And it would give us a chance to evaluate who was the best candidate. He was watching her closely now. He'd caught what she'd said. He just didn't jump on it right away. And he thought this was a good idea. 
he was willing to give it a try, she replied. That's because he didn't have a chief medical officer to tell him what a bad idea it was. She had expected that, too. In all fairness, you were just missing, then. You're our chief medical officer. He didn't speak right away. When he did, he was no longer facing her. You wanted Starfleet to think it was about Bajoran nationalism, he said, putting the pieces together. You didn't want them to send another Starfleet doctor, but you weren't satisfied with the Bajoran candidates, or you weren't prepared to be. You planned a rotation from the start. You didn't want anyone to plant roots. He turned to face her, his anger replaced by wonder. You are saving the post for me. Well, you were just missing it first, she confirmed for him. No one wanted to replace you. Bashir seemed to accept that, but then slowly shook his head. But after the body was found, why not then? Kira stood and walked to one of the windows. She wasn't sure how to answer that. Faith, I suppose, she said finally. I can't really explain it. I just couldn't replace you then either. I didn't exactly know that you weren't dead, but I just couldn't accept that you were. She could see in the window's reflection that Bashir was still at the table, though he looked up at her. But you had no evidence to say I wasn't. It was, in essence, the same argument Esri had made. None, she replied, turning towards him. I guess I just couldn't let go of the hope that it wasn't true, that you were out there so alone somewhere and would come back to us. He was silent for a bit, just watching her. She let him. It was, she supposed, a lot to take in. Finally, he sat back in his chair and, and sighed. I'm not the first person you've lost, he said. You accepted Burial's death, Gamora's, your friends from the Resistance, and too many others, Kira interrupted, agreeing. Why me? Kira nodded and sat down across from him. For one thing, you've been gone before. You've even been reported dead before. Section 31 is enough reason to be suspicious. This time he cut her off. But there was a body, he said, leaning forward. It was positively identified as me. Kara leaned in, too. I'm not saying I didn't miss you. I cried at the memorial service just like everyone else. I grieved. It wasn't some conscious thing I did. I just didn't change the rotations. And I didn't let Starfleet fill your post. My head knew you were dead, but my heart wouldn't hear of it. She touched his hand across the table. And my heart was right in the end. He didn't speak at all after that. He didn't pull his hand away either, not until he leaned back again in his chair. It's your post, Julian, she told him. We just have to work out the details. He nodded, and he let his eyes wander to the tabletop where her hand still rested. He spoke quietly. They are going to kill me someday, he said. She started to interrupt him, but he held up a hand to stop her, them or someone else. Promise me you will not risk this station again. You'll have to replace me. Kara didn't like his pessimism, his acceptance of the idea that he would be killed, but it wasn't completely unexpected. Esri would deal with that, she hoped, letting it go for now. If something were to happen to you, she replied, stressing the conditional nature of the promise she was about to make. I will find someone to fill your post. No one can replace you. How did it go, old man? Sisko asked, looking up from the file he had open on his desk console. Another dilithium shipment had been hit. There were still bigger things going on than Bashir's return. Briefly, she replied, dropping herself into a seat. He's different, but I can sense our Julian still in there somewhere. He's just been beat down a bit. 
I've cleared him for light duty. He and Kira are working out the schedule. She seemed chipper enough. More than a bit, Cisco thought. What about what Troy said about him being emotionless? She didn't exactly say emotionless. Dax corrected. She said emotionally flat. It's more like he never hits a high note, or a low note for that matter. I can't say I had the opportunity to see anything different from him, but it was only our first meeting. You can't expect him to be cured in a day. He's had two weeks, Cisco reminded her. He hadn't meant to sound so gruff, but the dichotomy of Bashir's behavior was frustrating. No one else saw him the way Cisco had seen him. Not a vacation, Dax snapped back. Benjamin, he was marooned, alone, for six months. Some people wouldn't even be able to put together a coherent sentence after that, and his two weeks on the Enterprise included being accused of genocide, a skirmish in which he and his patients hid under corpses, and an away mission in which he was trapped in another cave and fell into a room full of executed colonists. That's not very therapeutic. Sisko held up a hand in surrender. Sorry, old man, he offered. I didn't mean to sound impatient. What's bothering you, Benjamin? Dax asked. She'd seen right through him. Jadzia had been able to do the same thing. Nothing, he told her with a sigh. Everything. This war, we're losing, and I can't even figure out what the Dominion is up to. We're not losing, Esri corrected. The sternness in her voice seemed out of place in her little girl's face. We may not be winning just yet, but we're not losing. Sisko nodded, accepting her admonition. Belief could affect reality. He knew that, and that's why he rarely gave in to such pessimistic thoughts. It's why he, he had done what he did to get the Romulans into the war. He looked for ways not to be losing the war. But that way, the one that Bashir had confronted him with, was the reason he had given in to such thoughts now. So what's really bothering you? Dax probed again. Ezri, it seemed, could see through him better than Jadzia had. He wasn't going to let her do it, though. He straightened up in his chair. Old man, he began, looking her right in the eye. If I feel I need a counseling session, I'll let you know. She frowned but accepted the dressing down without protest. She stood. I'll leave you to your work, then. Bashir had wanted to start work that afternoon, but Kira had insisted he wait until morning. She wanted to give him time to get settled again. He didn't want to tell her that he had too much time already. He didn't know what to do with himself. Outside of work, everything seemed pointless. His mind swam in endless circles of circuits and conduits. He recognized them. He'd visualized them over and over in the cave. They were replicators and transmitters and waste reclamators and the lights in his ceiling. They were the walls of his quarters, the panels in the corridors, the consoles in the Jeffrey's tubes, the instruments in the infirmary, and even the engineering station in ops. I'm a doctor, he thought, not an engineer. He didn't know why he wasn't letting his hyperactive brain work on the prion project he'd started so long ago, or his work on the blight, or any of the other medical mysteries he'd used to occupy slow days before. He was back in his quarters. He'd thought about going to Quark's or the Replomat, but he just couldn't bring himself to face the crowds yet. Maybe that's what Kira meant by getting settled. He'd gotten another message from his parents. It was getting easier to answer their questions. He still hadn't spoken to them in real time, though. He just recorded a reply and sent it back to them. They were doing well. His mother had packed up his belongings. She wanted to bring them out to the station so she could see him, but with the war on, it was hard for civilians to travel this far. 
and his father was still in prison. It wouldn't be long, though, before his sentence was over. Maybe Julian could come home for a visit. He didn't want to. Not just yet. It wasn't just them. He didn't want to leave here. He didn't want to leave the protection, such as it was, of Starfleet. He couldn't protect him from someone like Sloane back at home. Sloane? He'd nearly forgotten. He'd been back at the station for more than 12 hours, and he still hadn't worked out the calculation for the security code he'd need to enter this evening. That would at least give him a break from the conduits and boredom. He knew they'd break the code eventually. Section 31 had more resources than he was even aware of yet. He'd been half bluffing with Sloan. He got data. That much was true. Even a direct feed so that some of the information he'd gotten, such as the location of Sloan's ship that night, was up to date. But it was limited. He hadn't been given enough access to get more. Sloan would come for him again, but for now, at least, he had a reprieve, if he kept up the code. It took two hours to work it out in his head. He didn't want to leave any records by using a computer or pad. When he was finished, he noted it was midday. He'd managed to pass half a day. Half a day. Of the rest of his life. At least he'd be able to work soon. That would help. His door chimed, and this time he couldn't guess who it would be. He sat up straighter on his ca- on the couch and called for the door to open. "'My dear doctor,' Garrick said upon entering, "'I do hope you weren't planning on eating lunch alone.' "'I—I,' I, Bashir stammered, "'I hadn't given it much—much much thought yet.' Garrick's eyes widened ever so slightly. "'Well,' he said, "'we should be going then. "'The replimat is filling up quite fast these days.' Bashir shook his head in little movements. He didn't mean to say no exactly. He couldn't decide how to respond. Your life isn't in here, Garrick told him, surprising him. It's out there. He hadn't left the doorway, and he didn't appear to be leaving without Bashir, so Bashir stood and followed him. He didn't really want to, but he couldn't offer an adequate protest. In his life before the cave, he'd almost always eaten out. Garrick didn't speak much on the way. He told the Turbolif where to take them to the promenade, and he spoke little words to get a table for him and Bashir. The whole thing caused quite a stir, though, and Bashir could feel the eyes on him, the energy that made him uneasy. "'What would you like?' Garrick asked after they'd sat. I, "'I'm not sure,' Garrick, uh, Bashir answered. He was trying not to stammer, but Garrick set him off balance. "'Shall I order for you, then?' Garrick offered. He didn't wait for Bashir to answer, but ordered something Bashir had often eaten in the past.' Bashir hardly noticed the food, though. He couldn't focus that well. "'I hadn't realized you were unable to speak,' Garrick went on. "'My claustrophobia has produced that effect from time to time.' "'Garrick,' Bashir tried, but he didn't know what words to follow up with. "'You look as if you'd seen a ghost,' Garrick observed. But you ha- "'And you haven't touched your food.' Bashir glanced at his plate, but was unable to pick up the fork. "'How did you know?' he finally managed." "'About what?' Garrick asked in reply. "'About my life,' Bashir clarified. "'What you said.' Garrick set his own silverware down and met Bashir's gaze across the table. "'I've been there myself,' he said. Bashir didn't know why he was asking. "'Where?' "'Tsenketh,' Garrick replied. "'I wasn't claustrophobic before Tsenketh.' Bashir hoped he'd elaborate on that. He wanted to know what happened on Zenkath and how Garrick had gotten on with only claustrophobia to show for it.
but Garrick didn't elaborate. So what was your exile like? Bashir was disappointed, but also relieved. He could handle such simple questions with objective answers. A cave, he answered, trying to keep himself from stammering. It was a nervous response, and he didn't want to be nervous. It was a cave. Garrick's eyes widened noticeably now. For six months? All alone? However did you keep sane? Bashir didn't know what he was asking. Was it a rhetorical question? What? However did you keep sane? Garrick repeated. You must have had some technique to keep your mind under control. Converting a replicator to a transmitter is, was quite a feat. You had to have your wits about you. I would also imagine the cave was quite dark. Absolutely dark, Bashir practically blurted. I couldn't see at all. So how did you do it? Garrick pressed. I thought about it, Bashir told him. I thought about it for months, imagined it until I could see what I was going to do. Garrick smiled that enigmatic smile he had, the one that made it seem like he already knew the answer and was just testing Bashir to see if he'd gotten it right. Amazing, he exclaimed. I wasn't sure you could get a distress call from a Starfleet replicator. Bashir shook his head. You can't. He knew Garrick knew that. The android, Garrick surmised. Data, Bashir corrected. Garrick nodded. And for Data to get the signal, the Enterprise would have to be within a certain range. How did you know? I didn't know, Bashir replied. So why do it at all, Garrick demanded. The odds were astronomical. Why risk starvation to make a signal that only one being in the entire quadrant could have heard? You must have hoped he would be in range. I wouldn't call it hope, Bashir said. Not exactly. More like having nothing to lose. How fortunate, then, Garrick concluded, that your odds paid off. Now you have a great deal to lose. <laughs> have I mentioned that Garrick intimidates me? And yet sometimes he just comes through and surprises me sometimes too. He did that in Osvientium and he was an hallucination <laughs> there at the foot of Bashir when he was hanging from his wrists when he was counting and he messed up the counting and Garrick corrected him and pointed out that what he did wasn't selfish, selfless. It was kind of selfish to get himself killed. And it was just like, I see Bashir as this idyllic, you know, idealistic person, and he would never give up his ideals, and he would never do a selfless thing like, oh my God, he did. <laughs> so it was like, it was quite a, uh, he did both. He was both selfish and selfless at the same time at that point. And here's Garrick saying, you know, Bashir says, more like nothing to lose. And Garrick says, how fortunate then that your odds paid off. Now you have a great deal to lose. It's like Garrick knows more <laughs> than he lets on. And he's kind of figured out, I don't know, in some way, some mysterious way that that slippery Cardassian has what's going on in Bashir's head. So it's it's quite... <laughs> quite fun to write him actually as long as I can keep him in character because uh he's he's a he's a hard one to peg but when the magic hits and it lets me connect with Garrick and in a good way like this he feels very in character to me 
and he's got this way of turning things around with his words and uh, I love it I love it when the magic brings that together so Bashir has gotten his wish but it is you know what what Riker said at the at the end of faith one is kind of like coming true in a sense he hoped to just walk back into his life as it was six months ago, but he can't do that. And so, yes, that is true. You can't. You can't go backwards. You can't make things exactly like it was before. And yet, in doing this, you know, he, he's still hoping it. And in some ways, it's like he can't. He can be chief medical officer again. He can have his quarters again, but... He gets his quarters and he doesn't feel comfortable in them. Maybe it was all these times that he was not safe there. And so what does he do? He goes back to this thing he's been doing of taking apart things in his mind. Only he doesn't have things in his mind for where he ends up. So he does it with his hands and he feels it until he can make the diagram himself without going back to his station and looking up the diagram so he could learn how it's set up. He figures it out with hours and hours, but it does get him to sleep. And it's like his brain is just going and going and going and he can't make it stop. At the risk of being too personal, I take antidepressants. I used to not want to. I used to think, you know, my depression is is occasional. There's things that make me depressed. So why? But the doctor said, well, that can change your chemistry. So antidepressing, uh, antidepressants can help with the chemistry. And I've been taking them since after we adopted children. I would say, let's just put it like postpartum depression, only it's post-adoption depression. And I won't go into the why, but it ended up being very traumatic. And so the antidepressants have helped me keep an even keel. Like for the first two years, I couldn't even do our money. I'm the budget keeper. Um, I couldn't look at it. I couldn't look at money. We'd spent $45,000 to adopt these two kids and... I just, you know, we had bills to pay and it was just, I couldn't look at it. So my husband did and he didn't do a very good job. I mean, he didn't budget. He paid some bills twice and forgot to pay others. It was just, he wasn't good at it. So I got on the antidepressants, then I could do the money again. I could do the budget. So it helped. And I've at times gone more, you know, higher doses. Um, when I got fired for the uh, second time due to the PTSD, um, I was very depressed, so I went up and I've come down because I feel better. And so this time I'm getting fired. <laughs> well, I was laid off. I wasn't fired. It wasn't because they didn't like my work. Um, they didn't want to let me go, but they had to let people go. And since I was a temp and my contract had been extended, it was done and I, I was laid off. Um, I don't feel as bad. A, I... <laughs> Sounds terrible, but I rather like not being at work. I like staying up as late as I want. I like going to sleep when I want, waking up when I want, and just, you know, going out to drive Uber late in the afternoon. It's nice. <laughs> um, but um, I do miss the uh, 
the budgetary niceness of a paycheck. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I do miss that greatly. But uh, the Uber and the unemployment are helping. I'd even settle for another part-time job in Uber just to keep things going. Keep you know, right now, I'm bringing in um, maybe two thirds of what I used to bring in with my paycheck. My husband's paycheck is still just fine. Um, so, so far, it's not dire. Um, so that's good. And I think Uber and unemployment are keeping it from being dire. But that's not my point. My, there's a side effect to my antidepressants. They eventually make me loopy and tired. Um, the side effect is actually if I forget to take them. And that happened a couple nights ago. I had a really hard time getting to sleep once I decided to go to bed. And my brain would just keep thinking. But I did eventually get to sleep, but I woke up at 7.30 in the morning, fully awake. And this is like I'd gone to bed at like 4, okay? My brain goes, you know, if, if I had been normally, you know, had taken my meds and I went to sleep... Not just because the meds, but because I'm a mor not a morning person, I am not wide awake at 7.30 in the morning, right? <laughs> that is not normal. And then I went, oh, I have a suspicion. And I went into the kitchen and I looked and yes, I had forgotten to take my pills. That's the side effect. If I forget to take them, it may make it very hard for me to go to sleep and stay asleep. So my brain is kind of like what I'm doing with Bashir here. He's so keyed up because he's not safe in his mind like Garrick said he has a lot to lose a great deal to lose he is not safe he was actually safe in the cave but he chose he wants his life back and it put him back into unsafe territory and it was very clear on enterprise that he was not safe and he's not safe on DS9. There's other mental things going on, but that I think boils down to you know, the, the root of it all. He's not safe. So his mind is not able to rest. So his mind just keeps going. He has to wear himself out. He has to wear his mind out in order to sleep. He has to make himself so tired. One of the ways that I do that, if it helps other people, my husband had, you know, I was having trouble. Uh, this was when I had the job at 8 in the morning, 45 minutes away, and had to shut my brain down right when it's ramping up. Yeah, that's not easy to do. Um, he had suggested counting backwards, and I'm like, I need to give myself lots of time, so I started counting backwards from 1,000. But that wasn't good enough. It's too easy kind of goes back to my bedtime book. It has to be academic to um, be boring, but it has to be fascinating to be interesting. It has to have a good balance of those two. And so the academic tries to keep my brain going, but the, but, or the fascination does, but the academic card starts shutting it down. And eventually I'm having trouble reading paragraphs and I'm like, oh, good, it's working. Same thing with the counting backwards, only I could get really far just going 1,999, 988, 
997, you know, like that. So I could get way back into the 700s. So I decided I need to make it more complicated. I need to spell those numbers out. And I do it with breath movements. In for O, out for N, in for E. Two breaths for the space between words, two breath movements. So then we went in, so it'd be out, in, and then T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D with up and down. Eventually, that wasn't even uh, um, effective. And so what I've had to do is only count the exhales. So in, O. Inhale, in. Inhale, E. Two exhales between words. Three between numbers. One for the hyphen between, say, 99. And when I would count and when it worked by, by spelling, even on the up and down breath, I would only get to like 980 before, like 989, and I would be going to sleep. It was, it was much more effective, but then when it wasn't, I was getting too far down. So I went to on the off breaths, and it, I start messing up. And what I want to do is mess up. When it takes me far too many breaths to actually spell out 997, I'm stretching it. My brain is going, yeah, we're, we're not putting our full ability to that number. So we're just going to go start to dream. Uh, no, nope, 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 we're still there. No, we're going back to dream. No. <laughs> and I go in and out. But it's like I can, I know when I start messing up that this is, it's starting to work. And you might think, okay, so if you're only doing 10 numbers, why not start at, say, 50? takes a lot less numbers to spell 50 than it does 1,999, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> 998, 997, there's a lot of letters in there, a lot of complication. So if you ever find yourself really having a hard time getting to sleep, give that a try. It might help you. Bashir doesn't try that. What he's doing is much more complicated, and he's... You know, if I tried to dissect my walls, what would I do? It's like beyond the paint is drywall. Beyond the drywall, there's two by fours. If it's an outside wall, there's insulation. If it's an inside wall, I don't know that there is. But there's two by fours. And there might be wires for electricity back there. There might be plumbing back there. And so the, he's going, you know, on a much more, it's not drywall where he is. And there's a whole lot of wires and, and things beyond the doors. and But he's like knowing what all those wires do, where they go, everything. And so he's doing very, very complicated stuff. But this is also a technique that I've heard of about, you know, some prisoners of war would build houses and like from the ground up, the nails, the screws, everything, they would build it in their minds as a way to pass the time, as a way to keep their brain active. So 
It is not a technique that is unheard of. And so I adapted it for DS9. And, you know, he can't just do his quarters because he's done his quarters all those times down in the, in, while he was in the cave. So now he had to go to some place that he hadn't done. So he has to go deep down in the lower parts of the station that aren't used to find something he could, hasn't already taken apart. And so that's going to come up again without just spoiling too much. He's not okay just because he's back on Deep Space Nine, which it was kind of obvious at the end of, of Faith One when he was going to sneak in through this other door and, and Riker met him there. He's not okay. And this whole story, and I don't know that I set it up as being just this thing on mental health, but in order for him to scare Cisco like that, I knew his mental health had to be different. It had to be off. And so this story just has a lot of mental health problems in it. And then the challenge for me then was the, the counselors, the therapists, because that's always tricky because I'm not one. I've had some, but I'm not one. And I have to try to make them seem competent at their work. And when I'm doing the Bucky Barnes thing, um, I've been you know, watching YouTubes of therapists and stuff all about trauma and trauma therapy. Um, but I didn't have that back when I wrote Faith. And honestly, Faith might have been the start of what I call the mega stress. Mega stress was seven or eight major stressors all happening one after the other or at the same time. And it changed the way my brain works. I couldn't concentrate the same way I used to. I couldn't. I had memory holes, and I would call them like unpredictable Swiss cheese. If the memory lands on the cheese, it's good. But if it lands in a hole, it's gone. And I can't predict what, what I'm going to remember and what I'm not. Um, and I had had a pro professor in college like praise my memory for a very long time at the end of a semester. <laughs> so, you know, like I have a good memory and then just things are gone. Um, so I felt my brain was different. And then I have what I call the giga stress. And that was family dysfunction related. And when I had the giga stress, I couldn't read. I was actually aphasic. If you watch DS9, you're familiar with the term aphasia. That's the episode called Babel, I think it was. It was the one where O'Brien starts spouting nonsense, and then that it becomes, it, it's like a virus, and it spreads to other people, and they start spouting nonsense. And nobody can understand them, and they can't understand why nobody understands them. It's an aphasia virus. Aphasia affects your words and all that. And I would read a paragraph and maybe not understand a word of it. It just did not get into my head. Or I would stumble on reading that sentence or a word. I got a postcard and I was standing on my porch trying to put together the big word on it. And it was a dream of mine, right? Publication. 
I could spell Czechoslovakia in the third grade, and I was having trouble reading publication, which is a dream of mine, right? It was very weird. And so I went to a, no, I even like wasn't sure I was spelling Bashir correctly. So I went to the doctor and they were quite concerned. And so they had me, again, TMI, collect my urine for 24 hours. Why? To see if I was being poisoned by heavy metals. Um, B, they did a CAT scan and found I had a partially deviated nasal septum, which had nothing to do with it. I was going to be tested for aphasia, but after talking to the guy who was going to test me, he said, you are so high functioning, you're going to come up normal. Even though you're having these problems. So <laughs> he didn't perform the test. And the end result was, you know, this is happening because of stress. I've been to seminars and stuff about stress management. They do not tell you that it can do such things to your brain. So let me make this PSA. Is that what's called? Public safety aware uh, announcement? <laughs> stress is dangerous in ways you wouldn't think. All right. There was a couple big words that I was so proud of that I could spell. And actually, the the I think it might have even been first grade or no, it was it was third. It was third grade, but I could spell archaeology in the first. Um, <laughs> so that tells you how intelligent I am. Um, I could spell refrigerator and uh, Czechoslovakia and. Um, I can't remember what the other one is, but in the third grade. And Czechoslovakia was kind of neat because it had that CZ at the beginning, you know. <laughs> um, but I could, I could do it. I could spell that. And, and to be in my late 20s, maybe early 30s. No, I think it was late 20s. Um, not able to spell properly anymore. It was concerning. And it was because of stress wild. It messed with my memory. It messed with my ability to concentrate. Um, it messed with my ability to read. So very bad. It even caused my hands to be painful. I think when I, there was a time when I was working at uh, a job I had for five years doing help desk. And I had just started scanning all these forms that we used to keep by hand. And I was scanning them into the system. But that scanner was at the top of my cubicle. And so it was just, you know, put the form in, scan, put the form in, scan. But my hands started hurting. And I did something odd. And I put my hands on a copy machine. And I made a copy of my hands front and back. And then I put those in PowerPoint. And every time I'd have a pain, I would make circles or lines, depending on the way that that is on my hands. And for a month, I had 125 marks on those on those hands. Um, and I took those to the doctor. And they sent me to a rheumatoid arthritis specialist and to check me out. And it wasn't arthritis. 
the, the best they could come up with was stress. Stress can cause weird symptoms. Um, one thing I didn't know then, but possibly could have caused it also was my thyroid. That I, we found out later was a problem um, when we were going to adopt from Russia. It was required to have a test of my thyroid, and that's when they found it. Um, thyroid can do weird stuff. <laughs> Whether I was high thyroid or low thyroid, hypo or hyper, um, I either had a span of time where I would shake. I would like constantly quake. I was in choir and I couldn't hold the book still. I had to lean, you know, if we were, you know, in front of, you know, a, a railing, I would hold the railing, um, maybe even hold my friend to kind of keep still because I couldn't do it. All that shaking was because of the thyroid. And then I had this time of spasming. So anytime I had to stretch a muscle or contract one, like, you have to get down on your hands and knees to pick up your pen under your desk. <laughs> you know that? That compression? Or stretching in the morning, I could spasm any, any muscle. I yawned and spasmed the base of my tongue. I'm not kidding. And it hurts. And I learned very quickly, you've got to flex whatever muscle that is. And that is not always easy. I mean, how do you flex your tongue? Go figure. So... If you have weird symptoms, it might be stress or it might be your thyroid. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, that's, that's a segue. Bashir is having symptoms because of trauma and stress and this lack of safety he feels all along because he wasn't safe in his quarters. Because Sloan could just come and get him, and he did canonically. He just showed up at his quarters while he was sleeping. It's frightening to wake up and find somebody sitting beside your bed or standing beside your bed. It's frightening. It is. He was replaced by changelings on two or three occasions, but one of them was for a month while he was in prison, in a, a prisoner of war situation. They took him away from going on a medical conference. They just took him away. And they, they installed their changeling in his place. So he's not safe. And if you remember the end of Osvientium, he kind of worked it out that they can be anything. And I think he told uh, Troy that in faith. They can be the door, the floor, the desk. They, they can be anything so you have the same fear about everything. So you're kind of like at equilibrium. Remember the equilibrium thing? But if you think about that, he's not unafraid of those things. If he seems paranoid, a lot of things are we're out to get him. So he had every reason to be there. Is it paranoia when they really are out to get you? You know? He's not safe and that is like in like what is so in maslov's or whatever hierarchy of needs security is up there so that's why he can't rest and it's affecting him in other ways in the way he's he interacts with people and 
it did on the Enterprise, just because he walked on to DS9, it's not going to magically disappear. So we are going to continue to see mental health becoming a big thing in this story. I won't tell you how it's going to go. But you know there's a part three, so there's something, <laughs> right? So it's not over yet. We're just getting started with Faith 2. So that was chapter six of the Faith Trilogy, the first chapter of Faith to Forgiveness. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you're looking forward to Faith uh, 7. Um, I think there's going to be some fun commentary in the chapters to follow because I do know um, what some of the, what's going to happen. Not every detail. I haven't read ahead. And as I said, you know, when I read this far, you know, back far since I wrote it, I don't remember everything, but I remember the big things. And I remember this particular big thing, and it's going to be interesting. And I would want to tell you how it, how it came about, because you might find that interesting as from a writing perspective. But it didn't happen in this chapter, so I can't tell you yet. So I'm, I'm but I'm looking forward to doing that. Anyway, as I said, you can email me or tweet me at inhildi i n h e i l d i at gmail.com or at inhildi. Tell me what you think about that. Is it horror if there's no monsters? It's just humans or scientists doing the horror. Or, you know, torture. Does torture, it's horrible. Does that count as the horror genre? Because it has torture in it. Um, so, you know, I, I don't quite agree with this commenter in my mind, but I'm, I might be open to change. Um, but he emailed me again a couple times trying to, trying to get me to change my mind. Um, hasn't quite changed yet, but should it? So there's an avenue that you can, uh, you know, give me some, uh, some thought on, or, you know, what you think about, uh, faith one, uh, the first, no, faith six, <laughs> the sixth chapter of the faith trilogy, the first of faith two. I, I did that numbering thing for a reason. And because it is a trilogy, these are not separate stories. They are, in a sense, separate stories. But they are incredibly connected. So they are faith. And I did set out to write one story, and I eventually decided it would be a trilogy. So we will go from, I do know there's 18 chapters total. I know how many are in each part. So Faith 1 had six chapters, or excuse me, five chapters. It was a prologue and five chapters. Faith 2 has five chapters. Faith 3 has eight chapters. So there are 18 chapters to the Faith Trilogy. I think if you put them all together, that's the longest story I've ever written. And if you don't put them together, the longest story I've ever written is not Alien Us. Kind of surprised me. Uh, it's Osvianchim. It is. It's Osvianchim by by a bit. So even if you probably if you take out the the languages in the bibliography, it might still be the longest. I haven't done that so to know, but um, yeah, I, I kind of thought Alien Us would be up there. You know, oh, it is. It's second, <laughs> but <laughs> but Osvianchim is definitely the first. 
um, longest story. But we did Ospian Shim here, we did Alien Us here, and now we're doing the Faith Trilogy, which all in all is the, lo the longest story I have, but it is presented in three books of a trilogy. And we have four chapters to go of Faith 2, which I will continue tomorrow. Bye. Thank you.